Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, Matthew writes, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. And when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. Matthew continues the theme of the book. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is king by reason of prophecy, paternity, power. Jesus has demonstrated power over disease and disaster and demons and now death. We all die. This last week, just two days ago, marked the 10th year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Two days ago also marked the fifth anniversary of the death of my father. He died five years to the day after the storm. He lived in New Orleans. It was an awful storm. It killed thousands of people immediately. And it killed hundreds, perhaps even thousands more in the weeks and the months that followed. Some people die young. Some old. Some die in fear, some in peace. The Bible teaches that we all die because of sin. The Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy once said, quote, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? He wrote, I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And checked the tomb of Confucius, it was occupied. I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened my Bible. And I discovered, he said, quote, because I live, you shall live also, unquote. Isn't that great? In this passage of scripture, there are four characters. A desperate father, a dead girl, 
a diseased woman, and the king himself. The king who's determined to minister to them. He's determined to minister to them because something has gone horribly and terribly wrong. Something has broken. Don't you hate it when things break? I do. Before we came out, Sam broke a guitar string. He was busy putting the guitar string back on the guitar so that we could have worship. I hate it when things break. I saw this cartoon. You know it's going to be a bad day when you wake up in a hospital in traction and your insurance agent says that your accident policy covers falling off the roof, but it doesn't cover hitting the ground. (laughs) What? I hate it when things break. One of the reasons why I hate when things break is because my wife will attest I'm not good at fixing things. When it's broke, that means somebody has to fix it. It's usually her. (laughs) And one of the things I think is the reason why I hate it when things break is because I have an unrealistic view. I think things should last. And I think that they should last a very, very long very long time. In this section of scripture, two things have broken really badly. A father's heart and a woman's body. But it begs the question, what's broken in your life? What has snapped What has brought about a sense of difficulty? It might be someone in your family. It might be your marriage. It might be your heart. It might be your body. Something broken in the thought processes. Something broken inside of your heart. Something broken inside of your family. Listen carefully. Because I think this passage of scripture is going to give each and every person who will in honesty and simplicity and humility come to Jesus, provide hope. No matter how broken your life is, Jesus can help. And I want you to look at the two main characters in the passage. Because again, the two main characters are very, very different. One is a man. One is a woman. One is a public figure. The other one perhaps very, very private, man or woman, public or private, rich or poor, they both meet at the feet of Jesus. And the passage begins with a helpless cry for life in verses 18 and 19. And then it continues with a secret hope for health in verses 20 and 22. But let's draw our attention to the desperate father. Let's look together at verse 18. Look what it says. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. Mark gives us the desperate father's name. In Mark's gospel, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. 
And when he saw him, that is, he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, unquote. In our text, it says, while he spoke these things. The man is interrupting Jesus' speech. What is Jesus saying? You'll remember in chapter 9, remember in verse 12 he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, remember he also talked about the parable of the cloth and the wineskins. Apparently he had just finished talking about this, and Jairus comes and falls at his feet. He confesses his hopelessness. And his helplessness. We know he's a Jewish person. We have every reason to believe he's a person of considerable influence. The term worship means to pay homage. To extend courtesy or, or respect. We might even use the term consideration. Jesus was in a position to grant the man a favor. Both Mark and Luke's gospel reveal that he's a ruler in the synagogue. By the way, before the Babylonian captivity, Jews worshipped in the temple. And most Jewish people would have lived within a hundred miles of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In the ancient world, many Jews lived close so they could participate in the feasts and the festivals. And... It wasn't until after the Babylonian captivity that the Jewish people began what was known as the practice of gathering in synagogues. A synagogue was a Jewish meeting place. And like I said, it originated in the captivity. That's about 586 BC. The temple is destroyed. Jews have to find a way to come together to pray to worship, to study the scriptures. And each synagogue had 10 leaders or elders. And one of those 10 was elected the chief ruler. The chief ruler's responsibility in each synagogue area was to provide justice and judgment, both religious and civil when it came to the matters of the community. And so this leads me to believe that Jairus was perhaps wealthy, almost certainly influential, but he's willing to risk everything. He's willing to risk everything and beg for Jesus' help. And sometimes deep tragedy will do exactly that, won't it? People find themselves in great difficulty. They find some horrible thing personal pain, some deep tragedy, and they'll cry out to Jesus. Other people go through life thinking, I don't need God. I don't need God in my life. I don't need God in my marriage. I don't need God for my children. And then they discover something horrible. Jairus was already convinced that human resources couldn't Extinguish the raging fires of grief and sorrow. He needs help. And what's his motive? We can guess. We can guess what maybe you would think. What motive do you need other than a father's love for his child? 
that might be it. But I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps there's something a little bit more. It isn't just simply a father's love for his child. I'm going to suggest to you that maybe there's a faith motive. There's a genuine belief. There's a genuine belief. A genuine belief that Jesus can do something about his horrible situation. That this person who we've listened to in chapter 5 and 6 and 7. As we've watched heal and demonstrate power. And incredible power in the life of individuals. He's asking himself, I'm wondering if this Jesus can help me and so we go from a desperate dad to a dead daughter look what it says at the end of the verse my daughter's just died but come and lay your hand on her and she'll live you know Luke's gospel gives us additional information as well the young girl's 12 years old. We know that from Luke chapter 8, verse 42, where it says, he had an only daughter. So this just isn't a daughter. This is his only daughter. And he gives the additional information that she's 12 years old. I have every reason to believe that she's a daddy's girl. 12 years Twelve years of sunshine and laughter. And whatever sickness had taken its toll, both Mark and Luke's gospel reveal the progression. In Mark and Luke's gospel, we learn that she fell sick and it would appear that that sickness resulted in her death. Servants brought the news of the little girl's death. And it's at this point that Matthew picks up the story. They've discovered she's died. And few things, few things, few things are harder than the death of a child. What's more horrible than that? Years ago, I read a story in the Rocky Mountain News about a 12-year-old boy. He was slightly overweight and he was ridiculed at school. And sometimes the older boys would get him in a headlock and rub his head and tease him incessantly. He went to church with his family. His father was a minister. And after church, his brother and he went out for ice cream. That was Sunday. The following Monday, the boy was scheduled to begin middle school. In the middle of the night, he found a rope and he found a stool. And nobody saw him leave. And he hung himself. And his mother and father found him the next day. There was no note. No explanation. The day that he was supposed to start school, his father cut him from the tree.
something had gone terribly wrong. Something had gone horribly wrong. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they face death. Whether it's young or old, whether it's your mother, your father, your child, the person that you love. 15 years before his death, Mahatma Gandhi wrote, quote, I have to tell you with all humility that Hinduism as I know it entirely satisfies my soul. It fills my being. I find solace in that and I find it in nowhere else. But three weeks before Mahatma Gandhi died, he made this last entry in his journal. He wrote, my days are numbered. I'm not likely to live much longer, maybe a year, maybe a little bit more. For the first time in my 50 years, I find myself in the slough of despond. I find myself in total depression. The thing that brought him comfort, the thing that brought him joy, the thing that brought him hope, the thing that gave him meaning and purpose, he discovered that it was falling apart at the end. And that there are people, there are people who, who think that there are certain things that are going to provide them with comfort and hope and meaning. And they find it comes up short. Spurgeon famously said, anxiety doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It only empties today of its strength. And so what about hope? What about hope? Where do you find hope? And so he comes to the source of hope. Look what it says in verse 19. So Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. They got up. They followed him. In that little brief explanation. And so did his, did his disciples. I'm going to suggest to you. Peter, James, and John, they get up. But also Matthew, the author of this book, he gets up and he goes, let's go see what's going to happen. So we go from a desperate father to a dead child, to a diseased woman. Look at verse 20. I want you to see this maybe in a way that you've never seen it before. Look what it says in suddenly, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. The word translated hem is very interesting in, in the original language. It's kraspedon in the Greek language. It can mean a border. It can mean a tassel. In the Jewish culture and in the Jewish society, tassels were sewn on the four corners of every Israel's, Israeli's outer cloak. In other words, the men would wear a coat-like garment 
and on that garment there would be tassels and a border. We find this in Numbers chapter 15, verse 37, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. This border and those tassels were to be a reminder of God's commands. In other words, the observant Jew would wear this because it was a constant reminder of what was revealed in the Bible about the Jew's obligation and responsibilities to be a part of a covenant people in real relationship with the God of the Bible. At the time, it was also believed that certain teachers or rabbis' tassels were imbued with special powers. Now, we know that there's no special healing properties in Jesus' clothes. We know that there's no healing properties in clothes whatsoever. Except bright colors seem to make people happy. John Corson suggests, quote, this woman probably didn't have the strength to wrestle him in faith or to grab hold of him in belief. Yet she knew that if she could even just slightly touch him, she would be healed, unquote. And look what the text says in verse 21. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I'll be made well. I want you to pause for just a moment and place yourself in the father's position just for a moment. Do you imagine Jairus resenting this woman? Just for a moment. Imagine your child is desperately sick, dying, dead, Someone or something comes along, interrupts the source of hope. They're on a mission. They need to get to this place. Jesus has, she's kept Jesus from getting to his daughter in a timely fashion. But is that really true? We discover something that in the Bible, God's timing is always perfect timing. God's timing is always perfect timing. The ruler's problem wouldn't have been an interruption, but himself. He needs faith in Jesus. He apparently has some faith in Jesus. But the Lord is going to make the woman give her testimony. Again, the other gospels provide for us glimpses of what we wouldn't otherwise know. In Mark chapter 5, verses 31 through 34, in Mark's gospel we read, But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling and knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth about who she was. The whole truth about her persistent condition. The whole truth about what she was thinking and feeling. And in the text it says, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. 
The reason why this becomes important is because Jesus is not content for her to just simply show up and think something inside of her heart. She is going to be urged to give her testimony. The woman's testimony was intended to increase, not decrease, Jairus' faith. The reason why all of that becomes important is because the fact that Jesus has has worked healing and hope in other people's lives shouldn't decrease your faith. It should increase your faith. You mean God has touched this person or that person? You mean God has healed this person? You mean God has been at work in your life and in your heart, in your family, in your marriage, in the circumstances that you find yourself in? That becomes the point. Instead of complaining, well, wait, wait a minute, why isn't God working in, in John's life? Or why isn't God working in, 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 in Mary's life? More importantly, why isn't God working in my life? Or we see God working in a person's life and we go, hey, wait a minute, why is that person blessed? Hey, wait a minute, why, why is, is God healing, helping, ministering, encouraging, providing for this person? And why won't he provide for me? And I think that the right answer is, when we see God move in other people's life, when we see God heal people, when we see God forgive people, when we see God touch people and touch their lives, it's okay for us to say, do you know what? There's a real God and he's in the business of changing people's life. It gives us confidence and trust. It should motivate us even more to love him and to trust him. Warren Wiersbe writes, we ought not to be so selfish in our praying that we can't wait on the Lord knowing that he's never late. Unquote. Mark's gospel adds this in chapter 5, verse 26. And had suffered many things from many physicians. She'd spent all that she had and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Mark tells us that she was wiped out financially. Everything that she used to have, she no longer had. There was no affordable health care in the first century. And what's interesting, too, is that it would seem that her affliction left her drained and discouraged and defeated, just like some of you. This relentless, this relentless, this relentless thing going on in your life, this relentless problem, this relentless problem. And this woman's disease would have also kept her from fellowship. The hemorrhage or the bleeding would have rendered her perpetually unclean. According to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, in Leviticus 
15.25, it says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days other than at the time of her customary impurity or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Do you know what that translates to? You can't go to synagogue. You can't go to the temple. You can't offer the prescriptions. You can't participate in the feast days. You can't do it. You can't go to the synagogue. You can't go to the temple. You are cut off. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 43, we read, quote, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians, could not be healed by anyone. Start to think about what you're reading. The girl who's dead, how old is she? The lady who's sick, how long has she been sick? You think that's a coincidence? I don't. The reason why... A 12-year-old girl, full of life, full of love, on the verge of dying, a woman sick for 12 years, on the verge of being healed. It should cause you to stop, just even for a moment. You should just pause, just for a moment, and ask yourself this question. How's it going? How's it going in my life? For you, things may have been going great. For the last 12 years, it might have been sunshine and laughter. For the last 12 years, it might have been a persistent problem weighing you down, discouraged, disabled, difficulty and now again we think about David Crowder's song earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal maybe you face chronic illness maybe you face the death of a loved one or maybe not even one loved one maybe two or three Maybe God has been more merciful and more gracious and more generous than he's ever been ever in your life. And then something happens, something terrible happens. And within a day or within a month, there is just this unprecedented adversity. Your joy turns to sorrow, your pleasure to pain. And instead of light, your life becomes this dark, ominous cloud. Or maybe you've been waging a private war with depression or pain or isolation, the kind of depression or pain or isolation where you don't feel comfortable going to church. You don't feel comfortable about being around Christians. Can Jesus touch you? And I think that the answer is yes. Jesus can show up. 
Jesus is in the business of healing broken hearts and broken bodies. Remember what I've said, Jairus, perhaps wealthy, influential, respected. The woman, just another face in a crowd of faces. The scriptures don't even tell us her name. She has no power. She has no resources. She has no or limited resources and support. He's a synagogue leader. Her disease has kept her out of the synagogue. John MacArthur writes, quote, in her embarrassment and shame, the woman who followed Jesus in the crowd would have preferred to remain unnoticed. Just like sometimes people will sneak into church and they'll sit all the way in the back. No offense to you guys sitting in the back. <laughs> they'll sit all the way in the back and they'll go, look, I, I want to come to church. I, I just don't want to have to deal with people. I just don't. Okay, look, I'll shake their hand, but no hugs, okay? Just, it's just not who I am. And then let's get out of here as quickly as possible because I don't want to have to run the risk of actually interacting with you. But Jesus makes her speak and reveals the fact that he's healed her. And maybe some people need to hear the truth about what God has done in your life and what Jesus has done in your life and how he's made a difference in your life. But look, what, look at how determined Jesus is. Look at verse 22. It says, but Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. I want you to think again about what you're reading. The woman was determined to be healed. Jesus was determined to heal her. And some people might look at the text and say, okay, well, which is it? Was it the faith of the woman? Was it the healing power of Jesus? What if this isn't an either-or question? What if the answer includes both elements? This woman breaks the rules to touch Jesus. She fights the crowd. She violates the law concerning clean and unclean. She may even have a strange superstitious idea about healing. What if her theology isn't exactly right? What if she has an inadequate or an incomplete view of who Jesus is or what Jesus can do? Is her theology sound? Maybe not. But does she know, does she know that there's something extraordinary about Jesus? Something supernatural about Jesus? And in a group this large, you all have thoughts, you all have ideas, you all have inclinations, you all have ideas about who Jesus is or what Jesus can do. 
But I'm hoping you're starting to understand that there's something different about him. There's something special about him. Jesus cares about those who don't seem to get much attention from anywhere else. And so you walk into a sanctuary from somewhere out there and no one knows. They have no idea what's going on in your life. They have no idea about your marriage. They have no idea about your child. They have no idea about the people who are struggling with depression and doubt and guilt and difficulty. Does she have all the facts? Maybe not. But Jesus turns around and says to her, well, because your theology is messed up and because you don't have all the facts, guess what? I'm not going to heal you. That's not what happens in the text. Aren't you glad? Jesus turns around the idea being he's facing in a different direction. And I like that even in the text. Because for some of you, you might be thinking that Jesus has turned his face from you, that you aren't able to look full in his wonderful face as the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But all of a sudden, Jesus turns around. Jesus speaks. Jesus turns around and he says, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is merciful. He's kind. He's compassionate. He hears the cries of people who are disappointed, who are disillusioned, who are disappointed and disillusioned with conventional wisdom and conventional medicine and conventional science who have lost everything. The Lord Jesus hears and, and cares about the person who will cry out to him. In desperation. Now can you imagine poor Jairus at this point? Look, look, this lady's been suffering for years. I get that. But can't this wait? My daughter's dead. What is this? I'm desperate. And you're asking who touched your tassel? I just need to ask you a question. Have you ever gotten a little impatient with the Lord? Somebody goes, oh, it's that nervous laughter that you know, well, yeah, okay, yes, yes. The answer is yes. Have you ever gotten maybe more than a little impatient? Maybe a lot impatient. And you've shaken your fist at God going, what are you waiting for? When is this going to come to an end? Because you've learned something that Jesus' schedule isn't your schedule. And it turns out that the woman with the issue of blood was an interruption that would become an opportunity. It's an interruption that becomes an opportunity. What? What are you saying, Gina? An interruption that becomes an opportunity? Jesus heals her. And I'm going to suggest to you at the same time, perhaps something began to grow even in the heart of Jairus. 
The interruption becomes an opportunity as Jairus looks and he sees what Jesus does and the hope wells up. It grows stronger. Faith wells up and it grows stronger. God's timing is perfect timing. And you may have seen God moving in other places and in other people's lives and said, again, why isn't God moving in my life? And maybe you're experiencing a season of sickness and sadness and sorrow. But Jesus, he loves to meet our need. He really does. The more desperate the need, the more Jesus is willing to stop and meet the the need. And when Jesus sees the woman's desperation and hears her confession of hopelessness and faith, he turns to the woman. How does he know? Because her faith touched him. In what sense? Jesus doesn't ignore her faith. Her faith is not ignored and it doesn't go unnoticed and neither is yours. Particularly when you say, Jesus, I feel like you're, you're ignoring me. And Jesus, I feel like my life is totally unnoticed. And Jesus adopts the woman spiritually. I love that. Notice what he calls her. Daughter. Now that might seem creepy in our culture and society. If Jesus is about 30, and let's just give this woman some maturation... Let's say she's in her 50s or she's in her 60s. When a 30-year-old says to a 60-year-old daughter, people might go, who do you think you are, whippersnapper? (laughs) But that's not what's happening in the text. There's a reason why he calls her daughter. I, I want you to think about it. She's isolated, depressed, unclean, alone. And when Jesus calls her daughter, you know what he's immediately doing? He's saying, I don't reject you. I accept you. I don't reject you. I accept you. Jesus uses terms of intimacy and familiarity. It speaks of acceptance. He says, be of good cheer. It speaks of assurance and comfort and consolation. And he makes her whole. She might have feared facing Jesus. She may have even been ashamed of her disease. I think some of you know that certain diseases bring a certain amount of fear and shame, don't they? Particularly in our culture and society. When you're talking about AIDS or sexually transmitted diseases. A woman wrote an advice column Dear Ann Landers, I'm 21 years old. I'm a a girl. I've been dating a great guy. He's 27, sophisticated, fun to be with, and I felt lucky to have him. He invited me to go to San Francisco for the weekend, but I couldn't get off work. I felt awful about it. He said, I'll bring you something back, something nice. Well, he did bring something back, but it wasn't so nice. It was genital herpes. I was so furious, I felt like screaming. Of course, I stopped seeing him. Now I'm afraid to go out with anyone else. I'd rather die than give what this great guy gave to me. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I feel like my life is ruined. 
She said, I don't feel like I'm worthy of a decent guy. Signed, Typhoid Mary in Amarillo, Texas. Ann Landers writes, Dear Amarillo, you don't say anything about seeing a doctor. This is an absolute must. Don't attempt to treat yourself if misery loves company. You have plenty. There are 40 million Americans with genital herpes. About half a million new cases occur each year. Herpes can range from mild to miserable. Get help. When I read this, I couldn't help but thinking about what we've just been reading in our text where Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We're broken, aren't we? Our culture broken. People are hurt. People are injured on so many different levels. They need to get help. They need the great physician. They need someone who will address the issues of their mind and address the issues of their heart and address the issues of their soul. It says in verse 23, look what it says. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. Flute players, by the way, were used at weddings and funerals. In Eastern cultures, they, were, they employ professional mourners. In that culture, even if you were dirt, stinking poor, according to ancient writers, you could at least afford one flute player and two wailers. Someone in Jairus' position may have had 20, 30, maybe even 50 people. Can you imagine? The little girl is dead. The place is flooded. People begin to wail. They begin to, to, to play the funeral songs. I remember the very first funeral I ever officiated. The deceased lady was very elderly. She only had a few relatives and even fewer friends. There may have been four people at the entire funeral. And this was my very first funeral. And it was customary when you take the body to the gravesite to intern the body that the pastor or the minister rides up front in the hearse. And I turned to the driver and I said to him, this is the first time I've ever ridden in a hearse. He looked at me real soberly and he said, it's always better when you ride up front the first time. <laughs> I never forgot that. Since that very first funeral, I'm fairly certain I've done Maybe 300, maybe even 400. But I've never done a biblical funeral, ever. Because every time Jesus showed up when somebody was dead, they came back to life. Jesus, at every single funeral, the person doesn't stay dead. So that when Mary asks me when I get home from a funeral, how did it go? I go, still not a biblical funeral. In verse 24, it says, he said to them, make room for the girls not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Sleep often denotes death 
in the Bible, but never non-existence. And when it says they ridiculed him, they laughed out loud. That's what it's saying. They mocked Jesus. Can you imagine the emotional temperature goes from wailing and crying to mocking and laughter? Just like this sermon. (laughs) The young rabbi has indeed healed people, but can Jesus really bring a dead person back to life? And can he bring a dead marriage back to life? And can he bring a dead heart back to life? And can he bring dead circumstances? Can Can he bring relationships that seem broken and dead? Can he bring them back to life? And in verse 24, Jesus says, make room for the girls not dead, but sleeping. He speaks with tender concern. And for the believer, death is sleep. Our bodies sleep. Our souls go to heaven. Our bodies are later resurrected. One Bible teacher uses this illustration. He says, quote, imagine you're in a giant stadium or an amphitheater. Hundreds of caterpillars are dressed in black. They're weeping and mourning, and I'm not sure what sounds caterpillars make, but imagine they're weeping and mourning. They're carrying a cocoon wrapped on their shoulder. I know caterpillars don't have shoulders, but just go with the illustration just for a second. They're carrying the body of their dead comrade. And meanwhile, a beautiful butterfly is fluttering above, looking down in shock and dismay, saying, hey guys, look at me. I've been transformed. The Bible makes the promise that our dead bodies will one day be transformed. And for people smart enough to allow Jesus into their life and into their love and into their heart and into their circumstances. They can be transformed, but look what it says in verse 25. But when the crowds was put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the little girl arose. She came back to life. But look what happens before that. The mocking crowd is kicked out. And sometimes that's exactly what you have to do. The skeptic, the mocker, the person who says, Jesus doesn't mean anything. He won't make a difference. He doesn't matter. You keep talking about this Jesus. You keep talking about it from your Bible, but it doesn't really matter. But you know what? Sometimes you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose whether or not you're going to listen to the skeptic and the mocker or if you're going to listen to the promises of God. By the way, there are 3,000 promises that are given in the Bible. Three funerals are recorded in the New Testament. Jairus, daughter, this one, the widow of Nain, her son, and Lazarus. When the little girl came back to life, she was hungry. When the widow's son came back to life, he began to speak. When Lazarus came back to life, he started walking. One was at the very beginning of their life. The other was in the middle of their life. The other was towards the end of their life. But you know what what all of them had in common? Jesus brought them all back to life. I like that because it becomes a type and a picture of Jesus' willingness to bring the young, the not so young, 
and the really mature. Hope. And look what it says in verse 26. And the report went out across all the land. Once again, his power made headlines. His fame continued to grow. People talked about his power. But you know what's interesting to me? Many still refuse to believe, just like today. It's interesting to me, when Jesus rose from the dead and he talked to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, he says, because you've seen, you believe, but blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. And what about you? Are you diseased? Are you disillusioned? Are you even maybe a little dead? Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. I read the story of a Christian man who lost his home. Everything. A flood came. The waters broke. He was heartbroken and discouraged. He was surveying the circumstances and suddenly shining through the water, he saw something that looked like gold. And it was gold. The disaster he thought that had left him a beggar had actually made him wealthy. His property was covered with gold. And so too the Lord will work through our troubles to strip away our cherished possessions so that we can get the true riches, the true treasures, the true treasures of mercy and grace and love and power. Sometimes the Lord will bring what looks like a disaster. But if you'll peek through the waters, you'll see something shining and shimmering. How thankful we can be when the storm of affliction brings the assurance of grace and the assurance of power and the assurance of love. If broken things have anything, anything, anything at all to give us, it's the opportunity to be well and to be whole. That's exactly what Jesus does. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, we, we thank you that you take broken things and make them well. And Lord, we pray that you would cultivate in our hearts a profound sense of sensitivity and compassion as we look at people's broken lives and broken circumstances and offer them hope. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, let's stand. And we'll let Sam get his guitar.